All right, coming to you live from the sixth floor of the Hiawatha. It is the System Failure Podcast number nine. How are we doing, Nate? Hey, good, Brian. How are you making it this week? Uh, I heard you had a um, a triumph on the Magic Circuit this weekend. Oh yes, well we did get the dub uh, down in Massachusetts at uh, ELD's Time Vault Games, and uh, we got first place in uh, yeah the Magic the Gathering. Yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, it's always gratifying when you can be successful, even if that successful is at some is at Magic is just just at a card game like Magic. Um, so that's pretty good. Well done. It's not easy to win those tournaments. Uh, you really have to be um, you really have to be have clarity of mind and have the right cards, and also have luck on your side, eh? Well, uh, you know, it's uh, well, getting victories is good. It changes your brain chemistry, like Jordan Peterson talks about with those lobsters. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm uh, uh, soaking in the glow of uh, yeah, getting, getting the first place there. And would you say you dominated a hierarchy and are now uh, and now your testosterone production has gone into overdrive, even though it's magic cards? Uh, I would. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's always a great feeling. Um, definitely the sort of thing we should all be chasing. <laughs> all right. Uh, we do want to give out an email here if you want to, you know, email things to complain about the things we have to say or anything else. Uh, you can reach us at NOP, which is K N O P P, at substack.com. Also, how things are going? Well, uh, so yeah, I, I haven't gotten ratchet, which <laughs> is to say that I have not smoked the weed in like two weeks. And, uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, I didn't smoke the weed for a few months, like earlier in the year and then I got back on it and then I'm, uh, I'm off it again. Well, Nate, I guess I'm wondering, yeah, I, well, I guess we do advocate, uh, we talk about like using, uh, dr- drugs on this podcast a lot and it's impact in history and, uh, but I see, I guess I feel like, well, I mean, Joe Rogan smokes the weed successfully, but he also does like kettlebells and jujitsu and stuff. And yeah, I don't know. What do you think about the weed? Well, there is no question in my mind that it can play a um, useful and important role. Who, who among us doesn't know someone in their life whose mind is so calcified that they can't consider new thoughts or ideas? They, their minds are stuck going down the, the same patterns. Um, their electrons are firing down the, down the same neurons. And so I think that um, I, I guess I, I, I've tried smoking every day. I've tried not smoking at all. And I think that something like that is really good once a week. I think it's helpful to go out of your mind. Whatever the thing is, um, you might you might uh, have a couple, three, four stiff drinks. Um, I don't know. The, the drinks really don't work for me. I feel terrible the next day. And you get an hour or two of fun, but then you just feel terrible. It, it, the, the way that alcohol ravages the body really makes it not ideal. Um, maybe when you're younger, um, when you have to kind of get out of your comfort zone and establish um, connections, social connections with other people, um, especially when you're chasing the opposite gender you know you have to you know go up to the young lady in the bar and uh, offer her a drink alcohol really lubricates those sort of social functions so there's value there but like i already have my fiance and i don't i, I already have good friends it's i'm really i think outgrown alcohol um now i can appreciate a, a nice glass of blood red wine a, a nice thick goblet of that stuff uh, to you, you have a little bit and then it sets the table it sets your palate up for the taste of the delicious um you know steak and garlic mashed potatoes and asparagus that you're going to have after that that all that's well and good but as far as a little brain vacation or an escape alcohol it, it doesn't it doesn't increase brain fun it doesn't it kind of shuts you down versus um versus weed which can 
have it can give you that escape, but it also will allow you to look at things from a different perspective. And so alcohol really lacks that. So I, I don't know. I think as uh, I'll be 40 next month, um, and so as um, middle age comes stalking for me like a thief in the night, I think really the the transition to the transition to weed, I think, is an important one <laughs> to make around the time you're 30 or 40. Um, I uh, my fiance Tracy has got a a friend group down in New Jersey, and they're all really great people. Um, these people are a pleasure to hang out with, and it's interesting to see some of them turn the dog leg into and embrace the weed renaissance, and other ones have to continue down the road of alcohol, and it's just not a great look as uh, as forty uh, looms large. I'm a little bit older than most of those folks, but some of them have jobs where they get drug tested, and so therefore they've got no option; they just have to keep go into alcohol, but, um, but I don't know. I think that there is a place in life for the, there's an intellectual place on the mantle for, for marijuana. Um, but you really have to try to keep it to once a week. The, the, the issue for me is that you have it on one night, you, you have weed on one day and then the next day it seems like a good idea to have it again. And that's the trap. Cause then you end up going, you end up going back to that well and the whole structure of your brain chemistry that releases dopamine involves weed if you do it uh, multiple days in a row. So I, I think that's the trap. So it's a tough one to have discipline, and it's something that I, I fight against too. You really, uh, Terrence McKenna always said, you know, if you can just keep your marijuana consumption to once a week, then you really will show that you have discipline over the thing, and you can uh, uh, take on its benefits without sliding into its liabilities, if that makes sense. Um, so what do you think? Where is your brain at these days, Brian, on the marijuana front? Well, just one thing I noticed uh, this week after, I mean, I pretty much have been doing the once a week thing probably uh, for a while here, like over the summer. And then on Monday, after making it through the weekend without smoking the weed, I definitely noticed that I felt better. And I mean, I think it varies by person. But I think that like once once a week is probably too much for me. <laughs> you know, I, I guess I think that doing drugs has got to be like a young man's game. But I like did and you know when people went to Eleusis, do like old people go and drink like the crazy brew? Do you know like it, it was just like all members of society? I think it was a um, uh, a once in a, I think it was something you did once in your life, and then from that point forward, you considered yourself saved. Wow! The way that it works out is that you have to. I think it takes three total years. You start as a minor initiate, and you work your way up to the major mysteries. So you participate in the fasting, and you do the walk to Eleusis, but then you don't get to go into the Telestrion for the major mysteries until you were already there last year. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. um, uh, so I think that. Um, well, I, oof, I I think that the reality of Eleusis is that once you get the message, you hang up the phone. Man. Okay. Well, that seems like a responsible, like probably the way you should do it. Uh, <laughs> I guess in my own life. Well, yeah, just the first time I guess they tried mushrooms uh, was the most mind blowing, and I guess it's been steadily less great since. Uh, it's like hard to like when you don't know what to expect. I think it has the best effect, and then you're just trying to like chase enlightenment, and you end up with this weird relationship. And uh, man, I man, that makes a lot of sense though. But uh, yeah, anyway, like, like just in terms of brain calcification, like you were saying. I mean, you do see the people who, like, have never smoked the weed, and that just doesn't seem right, but I, just as I get older, I, I'm not really, I, I got, I guess my uh, opinion right now is that, yeah, doing drugs is a young man's game, and probably something that you should do, 
But uh, as you get older, I, I feel like it's it's not the way. Although, I mean, smoking weed once a week, if it works for you, I mean, it doesn't seem like the worst thing you could do. Yeah, it's certainly much easier on the body and like the liver and pancreas and ugh, than, uh, than like alcohol. It's a tough one. And I suppose you're right. The answer is probably different for everybody. Um, but but I, I do think that we are really young. Like I think people listening to us might think, I think if you're like 50 years old, to some people, a 50-year-old seems like comically young. <laughs> and then to other people like us, 50 seems older. But I, yeah, I'm, I don't know. It, it's a, it's, it, it's quite a, it's quite an issue to wrestle with. Um, we live in a real, and this isn't just true of alcohol and marijuana. It's also true of like sugar. We live, it used to be that nature would be the gatekeeper and it would meet out delicious red raspberries very rarely. And so you would really want to load up on those raspberries whenever they, whenever they came ripe in the summertime. But now we can go to the, I mean, every third store here in Portland, Maine is a weed dispensary now. And so there is no, it used, right? It used to be like hard to come by weed or hard to come by mushrooms or uh, just circumstances would limit the amount that you could take in. Um, but, but now we're going to have to be our own conscious and be our own, uh, our own we're going to have to be conscious and we're going to have to bolt our own restriction plates onto these stock cars uh, that are our minds and bodies so that we don't work ourselves into a crazy state, which I definitely have done on, on marijuana before. Oh, yeah. Well, the uh, the over-availability of, yeah, these, uh, of, like, sugar yeah, and, uh, and dopamine of all sorts is uh, a crazy challenge to have to deal with that we, we're, we're not at all set up for. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I'll echo what you said a second ago. If you're going to be addicted to something, sugar, alcohol, I mean, the list of addictions, uh, weed is the least the least bad one i think of all it's the has the lightest impact on your body but it can tra- but any of these can tra- anything that's pleasant can trap you into a feedback loop where you end up just going round and round every day doing the same thing and not feeling not feeling like you're meeting your potential like you're living for the weed smoking instead of living for the sort of um, dopamine thrill that comes from crushing all comers at a magic tournament for example yeah well you can definitely get yourself into a crazy state and uh, you'll start relating to uh, rock operas from the 70s and you'll be like <laughs> where's the feeling gone yeah yeah well uh, that's a great Pink Floyd reference and um, I'm surprised I think that's only your second one we're on episode nine you know I expected at least a half dozen Pink Floyd references per podcast given your status as a Pink Floyd fan. Well, you know, you got to make them count. <laughs> all right, very good. Um, well, is that all you wanted to say on the on the weed front? I uh, I think that's pretty much all I wanted to say. What have you got? Yeah, uh, so what do we want to talk about here? Joe Rogan? Yeah, so yesterday, um, a JRE dropped with com- British comedian Jimmy Carr on it. And um, when I started listening to this pod, my mind was blown. Now, we talked a lot about the Messiah on the last pod and where we might expect the Messiah to come from and uh, what that looks like what, what the looking what the what the arrival of a savior might look like and uh, Jimmy Carr blew my mind he was comparing the likes of George Carlin and Richard Pryor to like John the Baptist um, and that really got my brain going I was like you know what I, when you see the old pictures of Christ standing around uh, he's he's usually propped up on some rock with a lamb in his lap we how many times have we seen these paintings and there's the right there's the people in old-timey palestinian garb you know hanging out list hanging on its every word as jesus uh, expounds on this or that mystery of life and creation and existence you know the 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 pictures that i'm talking about i sure do yeah well i mean uh so what we're really talking about is everyone sitting around listening to one person talk about the things you're not supposed to talk about the the the, the unsayable things the things the authorities don't want you speaking of 
I, I really wonder if like stand-up comedy is not our modern version of the sitting around in the open-air church and listening to the Savior prattle on. Maybe we should expect the Savior to arrive via the stand-up comedy renaissance that has been going on since the mid-2010s with the advent of the Netflix comedy special and the explosion of all of the comedy pods, and the Joe Rogan experience being the quintessential example. Um, that really is interesting. What do you think about that, Brian? Well, I guess I feel that the podcast itself, I mean, well, a lot of comedians do podcasts, and I guess I think I hear the most interesting ideas on podcasts. The actual comedy, I guess I find sometimes underwhelming, although, you know, sometimes you hear some people say some things. Uh, I mean, people get pretty upset at, like, I, mean, I guess, like, Dave Chappelle caused a big hubbub uh, with his Netflix specials. But, I mean, the things that are being said on podcasts really cause a big uh, hubbub, uh, you might say. <laughs> well, um, think about this. Like, the laughter diffuses discomfort. Oftentimes, we have this laughter response to the absurd or um, or the uncomfortable. It's a way of lowering the tension in a, in a, a tight situation. How many times have we watched those? I mean, it's comedy special after comedy special from the great Bill Burr. He's, like, saying, like, forbidden things about women <laughs> You know, and people are laughing because it's uncomfortable because these are the things you're not supposed to say. And uh, I, I really think that there is a relationship between comedy, the ha ha response, and the oh my god, he's saying the thing we've all experienced, but which you're not supposed to bring up in polite conversation. And I think that's exactly what was going on. Um, at least that's what the stories about Jesus really are. I mean, he was saying things that the authorities were going to put him to death for. I mean that so. I imagine there was probably a lot of uncomfortable, like a lot of laughter and uncomfortable, just like to diffuse the, the the discomfort hanging in the air after you know Jesus would make a pronounce this or that pronouncement about how we are owed a debt forgiveness uh, from uh, holding up that uh, scroll, the the old book of, of um, Isaiah, which calls for a debt forgiveness according to the twenty fifth chapter of Leviticus. Uh, obviously, the Roman authorities were. The Roman authorities were pioneers in not forgiving debts, and saying the things that Jesus was saying are the things that are likely to get him executed in gruesome fashion in public. And so, I, I would imagine that titters of nervous laughter would be part and parcel to to the minister ministry of Jesus. So, old Jimmy Carr really had my mind spinning with his um, simile there on the on the JRE. Like so, Bill Burr. Uh, probably his like number one talent, I suppose, is like uh, like talking about women. And uh, making jokes about it. I mean, that's really what he does best. Uh, Dave Chappelle, you know, obviously he talks about black people. Mm, yeah, and uh, yeah. I, in a way that makes people laugh. And so I, I guess I really don't know a comedian that's doing like a great job talking about like the economic state of affairs. Or I guess wh- whatever it is that like it seems like our generation and younger is sort of dealing with. But I guess you'd have to think it's going to happen. I guess if you're trying to get into comedy, that's what you'd want to say something uh, about, right? Maybe we should be going to open mic night. Uh, there's an open mic every Sunday down at the Free Street Bar. What used to be Bingo's here in downtown Portland? Yeah. Uh, every Sunday night, they have. A, maybe we should go there and uh, you know start talking about <laughs> um, start talking about you know rates of return and and things like that. I'm sure it would get a I'm sure we get quite a cheer from the yeah, <laughs> from that- those sparse audience. <laughs> Uh, homeless people in debt jubilees. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, um, I do think that much like the boomer generation that preceded 
our millennial generation, th- those guys had quite a revolution in the 60s and 70s. Uh, they were doing LSD. They were strumming the guitar. But they never really identified the bars of the economic cage that they were in. And so the revolution of that, that social revolution ultimately failed. I mean, how all the boomers got into, they all got jobs. They all now buy Rolling Stones tickets still to this day. You know, they all have houses that they bought for 75K that are now worth 530K. Um, they never were really able to break out. And so if our generation is going to accomplish that feat versus going down that same path, then maybe we do need, um, we do, we need to start identifying the unquestioned assumptions that we all believe um, and start uh, start talking about those things, and then maybe maybe we maybe um, when you get those ideas into the zeitgeist, and people start talking about forbidden economic ideas at comedy specials, maybe then you know the Messiah would arise from the ranks of the stand up comics. Um, it really does seem so, so. So Jimmy Carr, he wants to treat stand up comedy and have it taught in schools. Like his um, idea was that this is an art form, just like playing music. And the basics of how to construct a joke so that people laugh is the same as learning how to strum a guitar according to the conventions of music theory. Um, and that um, teaching people how to be effective comedians doesn't is like teaching someone to be an effective sculptor or painter. All it does is make the ideas flow easier. It makes it easier for you to represent an artistic idea in a way that your audience can understand and appreciate um, and so I, I was really, really fascinated. Everyone should check out that, that podcast by Mr. Carr. Yeah. So in the sixties, there was like a real revolution, right? Uh, and so I guess I feel like, I guess they successfully like contained the rev- revolution or whatever. Yeah. It seems like our generation needs some kind of catharsis, right? And in the sixties, they, they did it. Well, I mean, we weren't there in the sixties. It's hard to, uh, be sure what it was like but in fear and loathing in las vegas what's the what's that author's name hunter s thompson yeah he talks about how there was that high water mark in san francisco yes and i think about that like a lot yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, the high water mark of culture then yeah it like receded and i I, it seems like that we we need to like buck the system somehow and yeah i guess comedy plays a big part in that but i feel like uh well, I mean, like we're 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 dying out here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's homeless people in the streets. Uh, our lives are devoid of meaning. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, we're all crazily addicted to our phones, and yeah, we need to like find the words for this revolution. Uh, yeah, we need to like stop playing nice, right? We need obviously like the rules don't work and don't make any sense. And we need to, like, yeah, I don't know. We gotta stop playing nice, right? I mean, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta start today, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love the way you put that. Um, that makes me think. Now, I would like to now set the historical table because I think that the 1970s was the end of a long period of revolution. The 1970s was the end of A New Hope and the beginning of The Empire Strikes Back. And so we've got <laughs> wow. to, yeah, we've got to wind down The Empire Strikes Back and get on to Return of the Jedi, and we got to do it soon. Um, because we're not going to make it much longer. This, the pot is really boiling now. And I think that I think it's true to say that the, I think if you wanted to date the beginning of A New Hope, when does, the, when does the first movie begin? That's probably the Industrial Revolution. That's probably all that. that and I would, pro- I would date the beginning of the Industrial Revolution to the year 1648. And that's when the Treaty of Westphalia was signed that ended the Thirty Years' War. And the Thirty Years' War, of course, was the culmination of the Protestant Reformation. 
1648, it was decided that the Pope, the Church, the Vatican would no longer be elevated above the, the crowned heads of Christendom. Um, now, for 800 years, uh, that had been the case ever since uh, the uh, Pope Leo II, I want to say. Uh, I can't remember my Pope names, but the Pope, in the, on Christmas Day in 800, um, Charlemagne, who had been the uh, military arm of the Vatican his whole career, was kneeling for prayer in Old St. Peter's Basilica in downtown Rome uh, in the Vatican. And as he knelt for to say his Christmas prayers, the Pope crept up behind him and slapped a crown on his head, the crown of the Holy Roman Emperor. And the Pope did this knowing that Charlemagne wanted that crown, and he wouldn't say no to it. But by being the one to put the crown on Charlemagne's head, the Pope established himself as the person who crowns the emperor, right? The person who, who, who puts the crown on the head of the kings and queens was the Pope. And so for 800 years, the Vatican was the, the top of the pyramid. They were the power structure in Europe. And uh, I think it was about 100 years almost to the year since Martin Luther nailed, famously he nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. I think that was 1519. And I think it was 1618 when the, when the beginning of the Thirty Years' War happened. And the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, and this is what your comment made me think of, was a little incident called the Defenstration of Prague. Uh, you see, the good people of the Bohemian Estates, they, <laughs> when people come around and tell them what religion they have to be, they have this tradition called the Defenstration. I think that there's been three, maybe four. There was an incident in World War II when they chucked... Um, when I think, the, I think it was a Nazi, uh, during the occupying Nazi army, I think they chucked someone related to that out the window, if you want to count that as a defenestration, but that's what it means to throw someone out the window. And so uh, the most famous defenestration of Prague, as I mentioned, occurred in 1619, and that's when um, uh, emissaries of, uh, Catholic emissaries from the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, who ruled Bohemia at that time, arrived in Prague to tell them that um, they had to be Catholic and they couldn't be Protestant um, obviously, a great many people were annoyed at the church. The printing press had come round, and the printing press had exposed so many of the church's crimes and so many of the things that they, uh, so so much of the the contradiction between the splendor and wealth of the Vatican versus the uh, the poverty and the anti-rich message of Jesus that's contained in the Bible that people could read for themselves. So the story goes: um, these administrators um, arrived at Prague Castle. And uh, when they made their pronouncement that you, you the, the people of Prague, will not be permitted to embrace Protestantism, you'll be Catholic, just like you always have been instead, they chucked these people out the window. <laughs> and one Protestant fellow, too. There was two administrators and then another Protestant fellow. I don't know what he said to get himself chucked out of the window in the madness, but he did. Um, they landed in a massive dung heap. Um, I actually got the chance to go to Prague Castle and to like check out the actual window. And so there was a... Um, nearby there was a there was a big open space they used for training horses and so they put the they, they just happened to have this huge pile of cow dung uh, cow dung horse dung underneath the window so all that happened was the protestant guy got a broken leg but um but when the holy roman empire fa emperor found out that his that his representatives had been chucked disrespectfully out the window well then the war was on the Habsburgs sent a massive army to occupy prague um, and that touched off an insane conflict that consumed all of europe and it wasn't exact it, it, it's easy to think of it as protestant versus catholic but there was really more. Uh, so, for example, the Catholic French were on the side of the Protestants. So, there's the, the whole Thirty Years' War reorganized Europe, and it gave birth to the modern idea of the nation state. You now countries have international borders, and the Pope's not allowed to cross those borders anymore. We don't want the Pope sending representatives around to tell us what religion we have to be. And that's what you that you just said that we got to learn to put up our middle finger. <laughs> we our generation's got to get better at that. 
And we might look to the defenestration of Prague as, uh, as a prime example. So, um, th- so that's a new hope, It was what you're saying. There. Yeah, I think the new hope begins with the defenestration of Prague and the Thirty Years' War. And take look, the revolution was on. Uh, we were a par- America was a part of it. Um, there was the uh, revolutions of 1848, which were um, which in which virtually every European country had a socialist revolution at the in the same year. Um, there was Andrew Jackson who uh, paid off the federal. And this will get to this will lead us into uh, into some real economics. Um, Andrew Jackson, who ran on the campaign slogan um, "Jackson and No Bank," I think that's what it, it was something like that. And uh, of course, um, it is said that Old Hickory's famous last words were that uh, oh, "At least I beat the bank," as he you know drifted off into eternity. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, the revolution continues. There's old, honest Abe Lincoln. No one talks about him. When old, honest Abe Lincoln, it came, well, I mean, everyone thought the Civil War, the American Civil War, would just be a couple of weeks. Just, you know, we've heard that one before. And as the Civil War dragged on into its second year, uh, the American government, uh, the, the Lincoln administration realized, well, we're going to have to pay for wars are crazy expensive. You have to feed all those soldiers every day and pay for their uniforms and their housing and pay their salaries and pay for ammunition and guns. And, uh, the list is... Endless, and uh, when the uh, when Lincoln realized he was going to be on the hook for a lot of money to prosecute this war effort, he dispatched his Secretary of State, a man named William Seward. You might have heard the name before. Um, Seward was the guy that bought Alaska off the Ruskies, and they called it at the time Seward's Folly. Anyhow, this guy Seward, he's out. He is um, goes to Europe, and he appeals to the banks, uh, the European banking houses, for to for a loan so that the U.S. government can then prosecute their war effort. But the interest rates he were quoted were a slap in the face. He, he, the, uh, the, the banking houses of Europe uh, quoted him uh, outrageous interest that, we, that, we, the, that Lincoln just couldn't accept. So what was the solution? Lincoln printed up green, the little thing called greenbacks it's a, and, and declared them legal tender and used that to pay for the war. Um, That's a good way to not play by the rules. Yeah, yeah, exactly. you got to put up your middle finger and let it linger. Isn't that the Eminem lyric? <laughs> um, um, and then the revolution continued. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, with his trust busting, uh, he would go around and whack up monopolies like Standard Oil. And the revolution continued even after that to the time of uh, FDR, when he, I think we've mentioned on this podcast before, but the, 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 the legislation increased the tax rates on the rich to pay for the, the New Deal, which was another cra- it's crazy expensive. For the first time, you have unemployment insurance and social security and massive public works projects like building the Hoover Dam or the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. That was expensive, and they soaked the rich to do it. And I think that, um, and we all know about the business plot with uh, Smedley Butler. I think we mentioned that on this podcast too. But you know, the story goes that a consortium of businessmen conspired to overthrow the FDR administration and install a fascist dictatorship modeled after the one that was taking hold in Germany at the time under Herr Hitler. And they failed because they approached the wrong military man for the task. They approached four-star Marine General Smedley Butler. Well, wasn't this led by George Prescott Bush? Yes, George Prescott Bush was heavily involved. This is the patriarch of the Bush family. Uh, great-grandfather to H.W. and great-great-grandfather to George W. I think I have that right. Um, yep, uh, these are like the uh, the Bonesmen from Yale. There's a great movie called uh, The Good Shepherd with Matt Damon and De Niro about this. Highly recommend watching it. It's the it's the transition of the OSS, which was the spy out, the American spy outfit during World War II, how that got turned into this the modern CIA under the Dulles brothers, and um, and that really became uh, an arm of the wealthy to enforce the program they couldn't they couldn't enforce during the business plot of the late thirties. 
they came into conflict. There was a power struggle in the early 60s, famously. They came into contact with Kennedy. And Kennedy uh, has that famous quote that he wanted to smash the intelligence services and shatter the pieces to the wind. You know, like, <laughs> It was like these guys thought they controlled the government. And so there was an outrageous struggle for power. And obviously Kennedy refused the air support during the Bay of Pigs invasion. And then it was on after that. It was a in civil war with inside of our own government. And of course, ultimately that ended up with Kennedy being shot and us having a line of presidents that do exactly what the, the nexus of business interests want for us. Uh, obviously, uh, George H.W. Bush claims he was not in Dallas that day, but there's pictures of him there, or at least a picture of him there. And this man, George H.W., went on to become head of the CIA and then eventually vice president um, and president, uh, vice president under Reagan. And I guess another c- conspiracy canard is Hinckley, the man who shot President Reagan. I guess he was a family friend of the Bushes. That has to be looked up. I, I've just heard that. <laughs> so there well, was like, go well, ahead. Wasn't Reagan threatening to like do something about the central bank or something, and that's when he got shot? I don't know. We'd have to look that up, but I wouldn't be surprised. You see, and that really leads me into the whole notion of the central bank. Um, the Treaty of Westphalen was 1648. Within 50 years, you had the first central bank pop up in England. Uh, I think it was 1694 when a consortium of London uh, and Edinburgh businessmen approached King William III, who had a war on in France at the time and and needed to pay for that war. And so the, the deal was, uh, we will loan you the money, but you will give us a monopoly on the production of banknotes. We will produce the banknotes on the money. And that, that, these are IOUs. The, the banknotes you're producing are IOUs. And those IOUs are... IOUs that the king now owed back to this consortium of bankers. And the bankers started trading these notes and the notes became, the, they became the clearinghouse for smaller banks. And before you know it, Europe had its first paper currency. And still today, if you look at your uh, any dollar bill in your wallet today here in America, it says right on there, Federal Reserve Note. It's an IOU from the Federal Reserve on the money that the, U, the treasury now owes them. The word treasury note um, has come to mean the the things that the treasury auctions off in its bond auction. So the, the, like the 10 year T note, the 10 year treasury note, and they have obviously different denominations. I think it's one, three, five, 10, 30, 50. I can't remember all the different notes the treasury auctions off, but the actual money in circulation is from our federal reserve and not from our own treasury. It's like we have a parasite and like every good parasite makes it the host has a countermeasure so the host doesn't realize it has a parasite. You ever see the you ever see the the parasite that looks like a fish's tongue? Like sometimes you catch a fish and it's got this crazy creature. The, the it like eats away the fish's tongue and then it rides around in the fish's mouth, you know, and I steals have. its food. It's really creepy. But like all good parasites that way you don't realize you have a parasite because if you do you'll you'll scratch it off or do something about it. And so that's what I think we have going on here. I think that um I think that the wealthy want us to believe that we must borrow money from them in order to print our currency. Money is a measure of wealth. It's not wealth itself. It's like um, inches or degrees of temperature or seconds of time. The idea that our government is broke and doesn't have enough dollars is like if a contractor came to your house and was putting a new kitchen in and then sadly had to report to you that Unfortunately, we've run out of inches to install your to the inches we need to measure and install your cabinets. But don't worry, <laughs> I know another contractor, and they have extra inches. And so, for a small fee, that other contractor is going to let us borrow their inches. Right? That, that's a crazy way to look at it. But that is actually you'd have to be brainwashed badly about the nature of inches in order for that to make sense. But that's exactly what's happening. Um, 
even though President Lincoln um, is a great example of not borrowing money from the rich first before you print the money you need to run your economy, then uh, th- even though that example exists historically, it's kept on the down low and we don't talk about it. It's like uh, it's like um, something we don't something that's unacknowledged. It's like a um, stand-up comedy ought to address that in some humorous way, you know, because it's it's uncomfortable to suggest that we don't have to borrow money from the rich when we don't have enough dollars. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's the inflation thing, right? Well, if we print, and it's it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's misdeployed. If the government prints a bunch of money and hands it out to everyone, and instead of us going to work, you're just going to get an inflation. And that's that that makes sense. But but what what the inflation? What you need to have is you, you have uh, a certain pool of goods and services we call the economy, measured by GDP. Remember that, because we'll come back to GDP. We have a, a certain volume of goods measured by dollars. That's how we reckon the size of the economy. And so if we need the number of dollars to be propor- to keep the same proportion to the pool of goods and services out there. And so if the government spends dollars on things that increase the overall size of the economy, you'll have a proportional increase in dollars to goods and services and you won't have an inflation. Your your the, the 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 dollars per good and service rate will remain the same. Um, now, uh, if you give out dollars for things that like if you just give people dollars instead of them going to work, well that doesn't increase the 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 pool of goods and services. So that that would lead to an inflation. And in fact, um, Abe Lincoln did we did see some inflation uh, during the Civil War um, because of Abe Lincoln and his greenbacks. Um, but not catastrophic. It was perfectly perfectly it, it I don't want to say that it worked perfectly, but it didn't like destroy the country, that we didn't borrow. We came out much further ahead not borrowing from the banks than we would have if we had um, taken a bath in those crazy interest rates that the Rothschilds Bank wanted to uh, want to, was quoting us and wanted to charge us. And oh, by the way, there's rumors that, um, uh, what was the name of the man that assassinated President Lincoln? John Wilkes Booth. That John Wilkes Booth was connected to the Rothschild Bank houses and that that's why we had to put a bullet in Lincoln, right? Every time some president gets a clever idea about going against the intelligence services or the interests of the banks, they end up with a bullet in the back of the head. Yeah, well, I'm sure that Reagan wasn't assassinated for, like, deregulating the economy. Certainly and, not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, yeah, I think it, we, it would be fun to look into the um, Reagan administration and see what direction he was headed in prior to that assassination attempt and and then what his policies were after that. Well, I know it's what conspiracy theorists say, and uh, it, it would it would just require some investigation to see if it's uh, you know like the flat Earth conspiracy or uh, I don't know like the Federal Reserve or something more legitimate. Yeah, yeah. Um, conspiracy theories come in many grades, as you're noting here. Uh, some of them are deplorable, but other ones are true and totally predictive. And so you just have to be careful which conspiracies you buy into. Well, so uh, I just do want to go back to the Star Wars metaphor, but just so when are we saying the Empire Strikes Back is? The Empire Strikes Back, let's say it's 1970. That's when the, um, that's when the CIA, well, let's say it's 19, let's say it's 1963 when Kennedy gets shot. You know, that's the end of the line. Ooh. Yeah, that, that's the beginning of the modern re- regime. And what we're really doing is preserving a status quo in which uh, bankers control and run our entire economy and they do it invisibly like it's, it's important to know like during the roman empire everyone knew who caesar was it wasn't some mystery but then things didn't go so well for the caesars and so when the next regime came and took power um when imperial rome became the roman church they weren't they didn't call themselves god anymore right they, well we're, we're not god not like caesar was we are god adjacent you know we we are the only ones that god speaks to so that's how we know that that god wants wants you to pay us 
for your sins. <laughs> right? That was what... That, oftentimes, uh, having a, a society that's structured in classes means that passive wealth flows through these, invis- through, through these channels from poor to rich. And over time, the rich have realized we want those channels to be as invisible as possible because otherwise people will revolt against them. So the history of Rome can be segment, of classical Rome can be segmented into, into three sections. Uh, there's the, 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 the monarchic period where Rome had a king like every other like every other civilization in the Mediterranean theater at that time. And those kings were overthrown in 509 BC by an oligarchy. It should be like, it's Italy. We're talking about the mafia here. The mafia overthrew Rome in 509 BC and installed the oligarchy with a Senate that only worked for, they, they called it democracy, but it was really, the Senate just did what the, what the optimates wanted, what the rich people wanted. And um, it was such a soaking for regular people that immediately you just had um, crazy revolts. You had three secessions of the plebs where people straight up left. They said, we are not going, this is crazy. Maybe we're getting close to that point here in America with all the strikes going on. But uh, the people, the people of Rome, straight up left. The workers all left the city and went and encamped, you know, away from the city. And so we're not coming back to work until we can negotiate a better balance of power with rich people. They, after the first secession of the plebs, the rich said, "Okay, you can have a tribune of the uh, of the plebs, a person who is your representative." Um, but then the rich ignored that. So 50 years later, there was another secession, and a few years after that, there was another secession. Or there was the servile wars, um, which were absolutely nuts. Uh, the first two took place on Sicily. The first one, you had like a religious person, a religious figure, take over and mobilize all the slaves and uh, start fighting against the Roman army. Um, the second one was also on Sicily, which was much bigger in scale, when like all of Sicily was um, up in arms against its the Romans had to again send a general with armies to like put down this revolt and um, but the third servile war is the one with Spartacus and that one was absolutely nuts. Uh, so many slaves joined Spartacus's army that he had to start turning away. He had to say we have way too many our armies way too big and they kicked the ass of Roman army after Roman army after Roman army until finally uh, I, uh, I think it was Crassus um, who would lo- later go on to found the first triumvirate with Marius. And um, with Julius Caesar, um, Crassus was finally the general who was able to put down Spartacus's slave revolt. Um, and it was because his soldiers stopped having discipline and stopped doing what Spartacus said. His organization was too big to manage. And so they were, his army got divided and was off conquering and pillaging where he told them not to. And, uh, but that army was like marching up and down the Italian peninsula. And the only reason that Spartacus didn't take Rome was because he knew he couldn't hold it. He could take Rome, but he, he didn't have any way to administrate it with his army of slaves. Um, but the point of this whole story is that um, the history of Rome is the history of revolt after revolt after revolt after revolt. You're asking when did the when did the A New Hope really end? And I think the 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 first movie of the trilogy really ends in 1963 with a let's say the Kennedy assassination, and we've been living in a bizarre a bizarre shadow world ever since. Uh, I, I don't know. People don't seem like. Here's a good example for you. Um, the rents. You know how the rents are all increasing. We count those rents are included in GDP. <laughs> like, the, like the amount of rent, we're all getting a, here at the Hiawatha getting hit with a 10% rent increase next year. Well, that's going to increase the GDP of the country. Think about how fictional that is. Um, that's not productive. The, the, GDP really is a propagandistic measure if it's including if it's including rents that are being inflated just because the landlords can inflict their will on us. Um, it'd be like if, if the Chinese gave out, uh, put all of their students on $100,000 worth of student loan debt you know, if they and, and they add all that to GDP, right? What, what we're talking about here is a distinction that should that had historically been made, that is now forgotten about. Um, the distinction between earned and unearned income. We shouldn't be counting unearned income. This is um, unearned income is interest payments, uh, monopoly rent, 
and regular rent. Um, these three things have been counted as part of GDP since the late 19th century when the rich people got their hands on the institutions of education and started affecting the field of economics and making it a more of a priesthood and less of a science. John Stuart Mill and David Ricardo and Adam Smith, these guys, these guys looked at capitalism and were amazed. They were like, this is, um, this is incredible. We can get rid of the old medieval world or the, the, the kings who, the, the kings, our kings, our, our nobility, the princes, the bishops, the dukes, uh, not the bishops, the, the barons, the dukes, all these guys are the descendants of crazy people who bashed in skulls and conquered the European continent. Now we all have to pay them rent. But, but the factory owners who are now amassing wealth under the Industrial Revolution post 30 years war, those guys have an economic incentive in the political sphere to get rid of those high rents because they have to pay in order to get workers to come to their factory every day. They have to give the workers enough money to pay their rents. Otherwise the workers won't be able to show up for long. And those inflated prices charged by the ancestors, the heirs of the uh, warlords who conquered Europe were a non-starter. And so in all of the, right up until the time of Karl Marx, whose final two books, capital volume two and three were published in 1892 after his death posthumously, as I mentioned, these guys all saw capitalism as this revolution, uh, as this revolutionary force, which would get rid of the old, which would get rid of the feudal monarchy. In a lot of cases, it did. Um, but that revolution, uh, right, 1892. This is a this is the time of John Bates Clark, the time of Teddy Roosevelt. That revolution has been successfully arrested in the wake of World War II, when the American and, and like the Western spy agencies from that war got married to the legitimate and illegitimate businessmen. You have this triumvirate between the intelligence services, um, the legit businesses, and then the, the, the illegitimate businesses, the mafia, the underworld. And this was the alliance, this three-way alliance, of course, with the people that shot Kennedy in 63. And so here we are, um, wandering around. Everyone knows that things have gone horribly wrong, but no one has the language to enunciate that issue, uh, to enunciate the root of the issue and maybe, you know, stand-up comedy, if we could make it funny, if you could make it enjoyable for a crowd to listen to, maybe we should look to stand-up comedy as the, <laughs> uh, as the realm which is going to birth the new messiah, uh, as mentioned earlier. Well, we're just so, like, culturally bankrupt. I mean, well, just like the boomers, you know, well, they had, like, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and the Beatles, and we've got, you know, mumble rap. I mean, uh, we got people doped up on zannies and just going to the microphone. <laughs> And you yeah. know, we're just so culturally bereft. We obviously need to like recognize the parasite, you know, um, like on our tongues, like that crazy fish. Like, I don't know, I want to talk to boomers and be like, Man, you were alive in the 60s? Like, I, I think they just don't understand like the lack of like cultural catharsis. It would just would be crazy to live through something like that. I, I feel like that the fact that yeah, boomers like live through the 60s and we have had nothing like that there's this chasm in understanding in like in dealing with like our parents generation and whatnot that they just don't just don't understand and man yeah do we just need to we need to the culture just has to be better we, we gotta stop playing by the rules like i was saying and we gotta we gotta we gotta have like our cultural like uh, well i mean it sounds like mao's cultural revolution which uh, i guess was not a good thing <laughs> but uh, we, we just gotta, we just gotta like be identifying the parasite. We gotta talk about it and we gotta, like our culture just like has to, it has to get, like we, we gotta, we gotta focus on this issue and, and stand-up comedy seems like a, a great way to do it. I really think you've hit upon it talking about, um, 
Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Bob Dylan, right? We, uh, art is what you're talking about, right? We've got to work on showing each other the insides of our heads. And that's what art is all about. And that's why the revolution that got rid of the, the collapse of medieval society brought about the Italian Renaissance, right? The Italian Renaissance is directly connected to the horrifying collapse that was, uh, that took, started taking place in the, uh, in the terrifying summer of 1349. I think that's the first year the plague arrived in Europe and started wiping out half the, half the population. The Italian Renaissance was all about elevating the procedure of showing some, someone what's, what's inside your mind. Like when you look at Michelangelo's David, you go there and look at the statue there at the Academy of Arts in, in Florence. You can, you look at that and you go, ah, okay, I, Michelangelo it was a man who was keenly interested in the male, in the male body <laughs> um, being a noted homosexual. Um, he, you can see, you can, he is able to show you with his sculpture the beauty he's seeing through his eyes and it's absolutely incredible. It really, it, it'll, it'll stop you dead in your tracks. And that's exactly what we don't have, which is just another way of echoing the point that you just finished making. Like, obviously, like, Reddit and social media is this, like, perfect way to rot out the artistic integrity of our culture because we just upvote, you know, puppies and hot chicks. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's, like, the opposite of, uh, you know, Michelangelo's David. Yeah, um, it, well, it's controlled by corporate interests, right? And isn't that the problem with the mumble rappers? Isn't it because we have a board, we've got boards of directors who decide who and who is is and who isn't going to hit the airwaves um, who is and isn't going to be popular it's like our corporatocracy our corporate rulers have managed to get a lid on the musical realm or get a lid on the broader artistic realm in general so that we don't have another bob dylan and we don't have another janice joplin man yeah uh, so i think art is a crucial part of the changing of the age and and it's a crucial part of what we need going forward um so hopefully this podcast can be part of you know part of that um, but um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess for uh, next week, uh, yeah, I'm gonna try to you know practice not playing by the rules and uh, I don't know fostering cultural revolution somehow. Yeah. Um, well, man, see, I, I agree with you. I, I'm afraid to not play by the rules. Like if I just stop paying rent or look, look my student loan debt. I still have like seventy one thousand dollars in student loan debt. At, it'll be 40 next week or next month. I'm afraid to not pay it because of the, because I'll then I'll have a bad credit score and then it'll be really hard to get a house. And if I can't get a house, it's going to be really hard to have a family down the line. So I'm like, I'm like too terror, too cowardly to not pay my student loan debt. Yeah. But maybe we should all stop paying ridiculous debts. Like we, this, these are paying student loan, paying the interest at least on student loan debt, which at this point I've paid the principal several times over the, the interest rate is what kills you. It's an exponential function, which is not intuitive, but we should all not be paying the interest on our loans. And in fact, um, when you think about, um, we all have this intuition that we should pay our debts. And I think it's, I think a good analogy is road rage. You know, you have these instincts when you're driving in your car that are relevant when you're at walking speed but when you're doing 65 miles an hour on the on the highway that's not a great time for those instincts to kick in and similarly the intuition that when you borrow a cup of you know you borrow a cup of sugar from your neighbor well you'd ought to reciprocate that and you ought to make sure that you get that cup of sugar back to your neighbor whenever you have the opportunity that sense of camaraderie is being hijacked to make us pay debts to these faceless corporations that aren't people at all and 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 paying back debts without it's just we all assume that's what we should do without any regard to the social consequences um, without any regard to 
how damaging it is to allow the banking houses and the wealthy to charge us all to to when you, paying interest on uh, the national debt or on student uh, on student loan debt or on the mortgage. I think it's three point three percent is the mortgage rate at which you will be buying the bank. That, that's the bank doubles its investment in in over a course of a thirty year mortgage at three point five three point three percent. You will be buying if you get a mortgage at that rate. You will be buying the bank a house and a bank for yourself in the process. We don't need to pay the banks for that kind of for, for credit creation. We can create our own credit at the federal level, and all that interest is a massive transfer of wealth from the have-nots to the haves. And they try to keep that, as mentioned before, they, they try to keep that that flow of wealth, that river of uh, that river of wealth, and they try to keep it on the down low. They don't want people examining it or thinking too much about it. But we don't need it any more than. Um, then we had to pay the church during the Middle Ages for our late, you know, if you go on a porn hub, hub binge, cutting a check to the church to make you feel better about that would seem like a crazy thing to do, but that's the propaganda people believe during the Middle Ages, and we have our own version of that propaganda today. You have, you have to pay your debts. You have to pay back these banks. You have to, we, we owe so much money to the wealthy, the wealthiest among us at this point that it can never be paid back, and that 2008 was really the, 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 the final which should have been the end of the Empire Strikes Back. We should have moved on to Return of the Jedi after 2008. But we have the but but of course the the banking houses want to prevent that realization and we have been stuck in a crazy propaganda cycle ever since. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the Emperor is just not going to go down without, like, uh, you know, like Luke has to get like, electrocuted or whatever and get <laughs> yeah, burned to a crisp for his beliefs uh, before we can get the catharsis. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So maybe 2008, well, maybe 2008 was Luke getting his hand chopped off, or maybe that's what's happening right now, you know, at the end of The Empire Strikes Back. And we're, like, we're, we're still going it, to, we still have an epic struggle ahead of us. But we really got to get from the end of Empire Strikes Back into the beginning of Return of the Jedi, and um, I don't know. I wonder if maybe you've probably heard about uh, RFK's pending announcement that he's abandoning the Democratic Party after their shenanigans in Iowa and New Hampshire, and that he's going to run as independent. I don't know. I I see a certain beauty or symmetry. Don't love everything RFK has to say. But man, I love the idea that the son of Bobby Kennedy and JFK during the crazy 60s, right, when there was this struggle between the, um, il- the illicit intelligence agencies, the illicit business and the legitimate business. During that time, uh, um, you had the assassinations of like MLK and Malcolm X and of the, the, uh, the Kennedy brothers. It, wouldn't it be poetic if it was RFK who brought down the duopoly that is not permitting us to properly address the issues that are rotting the core of our country. I mean, I just feel like that would be poetic. I, I could root for that. Well, I can just imagine these people who are like, oh, well, RFK is an anti-vaxxer, so I'm just going to vote for Biden or Trump and get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what they would like, right? That's the, that's the plan, right? Just make it seem like we can't, t- no one, like you won't find anything about RFK in like Wall Street Journal. They're not going to, they're just not going to mention it, but he's making the rounds to all the podcasts, like all, the comedy podcast, right? He's been on the JRE. He's making the rounds and trying to go around the mainstream media, which is totally occupied and controlled by the, by our, by the money interests to which we've been referring this whole pod, just go around the, the mainstream media and go around the two mainstream political parties. And so maybe we, maybe he represents light at the end of the tunnel. I would sure like to think so. Well, 
uh, if you're an RFK skeptic, just well, besides his stance on vaccines, if you just don't listen to that, he seems like overwhelmingly reasonable. He's mm. like an environmentalist, and he just has like he just says normal things, and he just the, the controversial thing is this anti-vaxxer position. And I don't. It's not like he says you can't get vaccinated. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I mean, RFK voting for RFK or over Biden or Donald Trump is like the easiest layup of all time. It should be. <laughs> Hopefully that's the choice we we get um, a year from now in, in 2024. I do think one last one final thing to mention on this front: the the war on drugs and control of medicine and political control are all fronts in the same exact war. Um, the church didn't want people going off into the woods and finding magic mushrooms that any fool could find lying around and consuming them and being able to commune with God in that way. They wanted a monopoly on access to God because that monopoly is heavily monetizable. And so that's why we had the burning of witches, right? They really wanted to demonize the idea of medicating yourself. Um, so there, there really is, um, there's this always this connection between authority in medicine and authority in religion. They're, they're usually, they, they weren't, only recently are doctors and priests different things, right? The, from the witch doctor right on up through the, the, the priests of the Middle Ages. Doctors and clergy, there's no distinction. They're the same thing. And we're still fighting that war today. Um, we, uh, there is a certain amount of faith or religion that goes with medicine. And we, we have to appreciate that. It, it is a, it, we don't have a good understanding of how the human body works. I've been very frustrated with doctors in my time trying to go get help with my, like, for example, I have the shoulder injury and none of the doctors will admit that they don't know what they're talking about. Um, if, if they don't know, they won't admit it because they love their position of authority or they like to think of themselves as authorities or they like to think of themselves as smart people, right? Well, look, I think this says it best. You know, the four doctors of the church, if you go to, uh, to St. Peter's in the Vatican and you go to the altar that's at the, that's at the front of the church, they have, this, they have the throne of St. Peter, which is an empty chair, and then around it are these fantastic sculptures, I think by Bernini, I can't remember who did the sculptures, they're these, but they're the four doctors of the church, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, I can't remember them all, but the, like, right, the church has doctors. Right? You really have to realize that faith in the Medical industrial complex is a religious proposition. These people like to hide behind science, but they don't. This is these these people. This is religion. Um, so that's the that's the point I will make on that. You mentioned uh, RFK and being able to and not liking the things he the things he said about the vaccine industry. And uh, you just have to realize that he, that is definitely that is within the purview within the magisteria of religion. Um, medicine is uh, so. They always been. It has always. Um, the, the war on drugs is part of that. Uh, also, you know, what's what sorts of medicines are acceptable and what sorts of medicines are unmentionable, like the mushrooms. Well, I guess on that note, we'll abandon the religion of uh, <laughs> whatever it is our state has going on. Yeah, yeah. For next week, we'll uh, yeah we'll try to uh, yeah not follow the rules and yeah. uh, uh, work work on change here. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm going to be on two part working this week, and one is how I can best show people the contents of my head and how. You know, we can call it art, but then also how I can how I can have less respect for the rules than I do. <laughs> uh, those uh, seem like uh, good uh, things to accomplish. Yeah. yeah, buddy. All right. Well, let's watch us some football, and we'll wish all the listeners out there um, the most delightful week possible. And please do send us an email at uh, nop at substack.com with your thoughts. Um, we would love to have them. All right. Sounds good. All righty. We'll see you.